we'll shift gears here and get back to something uh, more relevant uh, from uh, someone who used to be at UCSD and whose departure we mourn every day, um, several times a day actually, David Wiles, who is now uh, the director of the uh, Division of Infectious Diseases at uh, Denver Health uh, and uh, who has made a very big impact on our understanding of uh, both the pathogenesis and treatment of hepatitis C virus. David is going to talk to us today about uh, the current management of hepatitis C uh, because the opportunities to have an impact on this disease are unparalleled at this point in time. David, welcome. Thanks, Chip. Uh, it's always a pleasure to come back uh, to San Francisco. And uh, as Chip said, we're going to talk about hepatitis C virus infection management. Um, these are my disclosures. So we're going to start off with a question just to kind of get the temperature of the audience here and see how many of you are currently treating hepatitis C infection. So you can see your options are yes, no, or I'm going to soon. Go ahead. You got it. Okay, so the majority are treating. Um, interestingly, though, the ones that aren't, it doesn't sound like a lot are planning on starting sometime soon, which is kind of interesting. Okay. So these are our learning objectives. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the disease burden, particularly about some where, where the epidemiology of hepatitis C is changing in the United States. Um, talk some about natural history. Talk a little bit about the work of the patient, particularly about staging of hepatitis C, and then we'll obviously describe some of the currently available treatments with a glimpse into what's coming um, later this summer. So this is another outline, uh, kind of restating that stuff. I'm going to touch on a couple of special populations, end-stage renal disease, talk about extrapatic manifestations a little bit. I think always when you're talking to an HIV-treating audience, drug interactions are an important consideration with hep C therapy. And then I want to hit on two clinical controversies that you've probably all heard that get talked about quite a bit now, one being HBV reactivation during treatment of hepatitis C, and then the issue of hepatocellular carcinoma uh, after treating hepatitis C. Is there really an increased risk, and, and what, what do those data look like? So this is a schematic. You've probably all seen various versions of this, of the hepatitis C natural history. Um, so obviously, after exposure, uh, a, a number of patients or a proportion will resolve on their own, about a quarter, but that really varies depending on the population you're talking about. Younger age, women tend to, to clear more frequently than older persons or men do. IL-28B does have a very strong predictive value as well in acute infection and whether it's spontaneously cleared. Um, if chronic infection does develop, which again, about 75% of persons will develop chronic infection, really the majority are actually stable um, and you don't see dramatic progression. Now, in, in natural history studies that have looked at progression to cirrhosis, kind of conveniently, you can kind of remember about 20% at 20 years who have chronic infection are going to go on to cirrhosis. Of course, that's highly variable, and it depends on a number of cofactors, HIV or hepatitis B co-infection, alcohol, um, BMI or steatosis. The presence of other liver insults, essentially, is going to affect that progression. Um, and then once you have cirrhosis, um, somewhere around 5% per year then can actually further go on to decompensate, meaning develop ascites, some clinical uh, manifestation of their cirrhosis. Again, ascites, encephalopathy, GI bleed, et cetera. And then once you get to cirrhosis is also where you start to seeing hepatocellular carcinoma. The problems here, though, um, down here at these end-stage portions where we see the clinical events are, 
We really can't predict who's going to be stable and who's going to have progression. And we really can't predict once you have a patient who has cirrhosis, who's going to be a stable cirrhotic that's going to be that way for 10 years. We all have patients in our practices, I think, who have had cirrhosis maybe diagnosed a decade ago, and they've actually done fine. Um, but there are other patients that you'll diagnose them with cirrhosis, and then relatively soon you'll also see a decompensation event. And because we can't predict those, we're, we're in the setting where we should be treating these people because we can't predict. The last thing I'll mention is, while I said 20% at 20 years, there are some long-term cohorts that have been followed, particularly women who were infected at a young age, a lot of them with contaminated rogam and things like this. There's a German cohort where, where this data came from, where they continue to follow this cohort, and what they see is that cirrhosis or fibrosis progression is not linear, and it seems to pick up as you get further and further along and further out. Some of that may be coexistent liver insults again. Um, as BMI went up in this cohort of women, certainly they seem to see the uptick of uh, progression or further progression of liver fibrosis. So it may be fatty liver or other insults. But certainly, in that cohort anyway, about 40% at 30 years had cirrhosis. And that was on repeated biopsy or fiber scan. So here in the United States, it's, this was first published by the CDC back in 2012, where you can see around 2006, 2007, hepatitis C outstripped HIV for the first time as a cause of mortality uh, in the United States. Um, you can see HIV had steadily been decreasing while hepatitis C has been steadily increasing. Um, they kind of updated their analysis for the year 2013, and you've seen a continued rise in hepatitis C-related mortality. Um, other data from the CDC in the CHECKS cohort, which uh, is looking at a number of large healthcare systems across the United States, Geisinger Health in, in Pennsylvania, um, Henry Ford in Detroit, uh, Kaiser in Oregon and Hawaii, has suggested that instead of the about 20,000 deaths that get estimated, if you actually look very closely and do a more detailed analysis of cases of, of death, um, that we're probably vastly undercounting the impact of hepatitis C on mortality. Somebody that dies of hepatocellular carcinoma or end-stage liver disease may not list the ICD-9 code for hepatitis C, so it gets missed. And when they did a detailed look, they estimated it may be closer to 80,000 patients or more uh, a year that are dying, at least with hepatitis C, and many of those probably related to hep C. Um, the good news is you treat hepatitis C, um, you really have a dramatic impact on morbidity and mortality related to the virus. Um, this is one of the classic articles um, in JAMA from Vandermeer. Um, showing that patients who achieved SVR versus non-SVR patients, so all these patients were elected to be treated, these were interferon-based therapies, um, but the ones who achieved an SVR had dramatic reductions in all-cause mortality, so it's not just liver-related, but then as you'd expect, liver-related mortality, hepatocellular carcinoma and liver failure all went down dramatically. This was also one of the first studies that just seemed to indicate that genotype 3 of hepatitis C may be a bit more virulent, if you will. Um, and there have been other studies within the VA in particular in, in larger cohorts that have, have held this up, where genotype 3 seems to be more virulent. So it's not only a little bit harder to treat, it also does seem to progress faster. Whether that's its effect on the liver with steatosis is the direct causal link to that progression, I don't think is completely clear. And then you can even take it a step further, which they did in a kind of follow-up of this cohort. You can actually look now, um, compared to age, and other risk factor matched controls who don't have hepatitis C. And you can see, again, if you treat a patient with hepatitis C and achieve an SVR, their, their, their mortality or their survival curve now starts to look like an un-HCV-infected match population, where, again, there's this, this significant increase in mortality um, with un uncured hepatitis C. So we've got another polling question here. This is um, asking you what you think about HCV, incident HCV in the United States right now. So the number of acute or incident HCV infections in the United States is estimated to be, and you've got choices here, kind of got 12,000, but it's going down or going up. 
34,000 going up or down, 75 going up or down. I don't know, but it's got to be going down, right? is the audience say okay oh boy some of you are really pessimistic um so the majority almost a third said seventy-five thousand and going up it's actually close to thirty-four thousand and going up but at least you know which way it's going i think is the general sentiment so this is um one of a number of data slides i could have picked that have um been come out over the last really several years indicating the problem we're having with an increase in incidence of hepatitis c infections in the united states this was most recent just mmwr uh, a couple weeks ago, looking at acute hepatitis C for the year 2015. Um, you can see 0.8 per 100,000, which translates into about 34,000 new infections. That's been steadily going up since about 2010. Um, and what they had a nice uh, graphic that showed incidence rates by state here, being a dark state is a bad thing. That's the higher incidence rates per uh, 100,000. You can see almost two per 100,000 in some of these states concentrated in Appalachia in the Midwest in particular. Um, some of the hotspots as well as Massachusetts. Um, and then this other graphic here shows where the Medicaid restrictions. Now, in this case, darker is better. So the more permissive is the are the dark colors. Um, but you can see certainly some areas where there's restrictive um, are kind of overlapping with where we have the worst problem with uh, acute hepatitis C. The other thing compounding this is a lot of these cases are very urban, uh, or sorry, very rural areas um, where there is not great access to healthcare and, and not a lot of even screening or harm reduction measures available. So um, I think we really uh, have a problem here that's probably, unfortunately, not going to get better anytime soon necessarily in the United States. Some good news, though, I think this was one of the highlights, at least for me, from the hepatitis sessions at, at CROI this past year was data from um, the Netherlands on what the work they've done with treatment of acute hepatitis C and HIV-positive MSM, and how, um, again, this was really the first proof of concept of treatment as prevention of, for transmission of hepatitis C. Um, so they looked at a time period in 2014, acute hepatitis C infections, uh, 93, you can see the genotype breakdown um, in the uh, average incidence here, 11.2 per thousand uh, patient years of follow-up. And then in 2016, after they had spent some time, they had a, a study ongoing and had really made a concerted effort to treat all acute infections and, in fact, more broadly treat all hepatitis C and their HIV-positive MSMs um, and had reached, uh, had uh, treated almost 75% uh, of that population in their estimation by the time they did this relook. And now you can see acute cases essentially cut in half um, and with an incidence rate that's now 5.5 per thousand patient years of follow-up. And you can see the percentage here, 0.55% per year. Um, and they made the nice comment that this was even faster than the models would have suggested um, by implementation of widespread HCV treatment in, in patients who are also presumably uh, at risk for transmitting. Um, they also present data on other sexually transmitted infections, which did not go down over that time period. So it wasn't a change in behaviors, they didn't think. Um, in fact, cases of syphilis and other STIs had actually gone up. Okay. So that's a little bit of um, some of the newest things in hepatitis C epidemiology. Now we're going to jump in and talk about um, our therapeutic approaches to hepatitis C. I'll frame that in the context of the viral life cycle you can see here. Um, and I'll just highlight um, kind of the main classes of uh, hepatitis C antivirals we have, NS3 protease inhibitors, 
uh, NS5B RNA polymerase inhibitors, which are of both non-nucleoside and nucleoside or nucleotide, um, and then NS5A inhibitors, kind of the largest class. This is kind of a graphical representation of the regimens we have with the color coding kind of indicating the different combinations, striped being fixed dose combinations versus separate pills. And then we have two regimens that are um, expected to receive regulatory approval um, probably late summer in the United States, one being a triple combination regimen now, our first fixed dose triple combination regimen, soft Velvox, which takes an already approved formulation and adds now a pangenotypic protease inhibitor. Um, and then um, a, a new protease inhibitor plus NS5A inhibitor um, combination uh, as well. And I'll talk briefly, just very briefly at the end about those combinations. So these are the drug classes we have. They have common endings, so you kind of separate them out, the protease inhibitors, NS5A inhibitors, and then nucleotides, really only sofosphere. Um, I didn't have enough room, um, so I left um, Dasabuvir off. Um, it's, it's part of the, the triple drug combination now, but there's not a lot of other drugs coming along in that class, um, and we're using probably that regimen a little bit less and less. Um, in terms of potency, they're all highly potent now. Um, we've certainly gone through iterations, but I think all the protease inhibitors we have now are really very potent, as well as all the NS5A inhibitors in sofosphere. Um, the, probably the most unique thing about sofosphere is it's a it's very high resistance barrier. Um, you can really essentially give it as monotherapy, and you wouldn't see emergence of resistance. Now, you would, you would see relapse of virus when you stop, but you also wouldn't see resistance. Um, with protease inhibitors and NS5A inhibitors, much like um, what Connie talked about with new HIV medicines, as we get successive iterations of, of new, new medications within a drug class, we get better and better side effect profiles, increased potency, and higher barriers to resistance. And in fact, that's been the case with the hepatitis C therapies as well. The most recent entrants, glucaprevir and voxelaprevir, are truly pangenotypic protease inhibitors, the first we've really seen that cover all, including genotype 3, and have high barriers to resistance. And then pibrentosphere, again, truly pangenotypic. Um, and probably has a, a uniquely high barrier to resistance uh, among um, NS5A inhibitors, at least expected within this first year, next year. So we've had tremendous advances in hepatitis C therapy, and what that means really is there's interferon-free therapy now for every patient population. Um, we're really to the point where you're not going to be reaching for interferon. There are still key considerations. You need to know the genotype and, in fact, the subtype. That's becoming less important as we get these new regimens. Most of the new regimens now are really truly pangenotypic. Um, it's often asked, are we going to get to a point where we don't do genotyping? I don't see that anytime soon. There are still some nuances, even with, say, sophilpatosphere, which is a truly pangenotypic regimen. In genotype 3, I think there are some nuances still. Um, fibrosis stage is important, one, to treat your patient, right? You, you certainly need to know if they have cirrhosis or um, uh, bridging fibrosis, you're going to treat them differently. And then the reality remains that in a lot of places you need to know their fibrosis stage to access therapy still. Um, treatment history is important and drug interactions as we'll come back to. But again, co-infection and end-stage renal disease are really not a consideration, particularly once we get the, the GP regimen out, that's going to be the, the one key for patients with end-stage renal disease who have genotypes 2 and 3 where we struggle a little bit um, because of at least the lack of data with sofosbuvir. Um, in that population. And then what insurance do they have, unfortunately, again, is a question we're asking. Maybe not so much in our HIV-infected patients, but we still have to ask it. Um, I just want to talk two slides really about fibrosis staging because it is important, again, not only to access drug, but to really appropriately manage and take care of your patients. Um, liver biopsy, we really almost never do anymore. The one thing about liver biopsy is you may occasionally be surprised and find an alternative diagnosis or an additional diagnosis you weren't expecting. We did see that occasionally when we were, back when we were biopsying 
drug interaction, drug reactions, particularly a lot of plasma cells in the, in the liver and things like that that suggested potentially a, a drug reaction component in our co-infected patients frequently. Um, uh, the routine indices, so these are things like APRI and FIB4 that you can do with labs you have at hand in your patients. Um, they're widely available. They're obviously low cost, really essentially free because you're probably getting those labs for other reasons already anyway. Um, and they're actually, they're not bad. They're, they're not great. They're probably best for telling you the patient is relatively unlikely to have cirrhosis or, or very likely to have cirrhosis. But you're certainly not going to be able to distinguish an F2 from an F3 despite what your insurance may be asking you to do with these tests. Um, then there are the proprietary indices. I think you're all used to thinking about some of these. These use other components to give you also a virtual biopsy score from a blood draw. And then transient elastography, um, which has been FDA approved now for several years, um, is, is pretty good, particularly at diagnosing cirrhosis. The one unique thing about um, transient elastography is it gives you more data than just the binary answer of does my patient have cirrhosis or do they not. There is additional information once you get above the cirrhotic threshold into terms, in terms of how likely they are to have a decompensation event or how likely are they to have significant portal hypertension. And some societies are coming to the point where they're saying, you know, if you have a cirrhotic patient but their fibro scan is less than 20 kPa, you probably don't need to consider doing endoscopy in all those patients. Uh, and I've heard more and more of my hepatology colleagues kind of coming to that. I don't, I don't think it's widely accepted necessarily yet, and you have to look at the rest of the patient as well, make sure their platelet count and other things kind of uh, corroborate the fact they don't have portal hypertension. But it is, it is an issue. It is a, a bonus of this test, I think, the additional information you get for cirrhotic patients. And this is just meant to highlight the fact that um, while you can discriminate at the extremes, when you're here in the middle um, with using uh, one of these proprietary blood-based tests, you really have so much overlap, you cannot try to distinguish between an F2 and an F3, or even an F1 and an F2, things like this, even though, again, a lot of times our insurance companies will ask us to try to do that with these lab tests. And then this is what the overlap looks like for um, elastography. You can see it really seems to do very well for identifying cirrhotics and then more overlap at the earlier stages of uh, fibrosis. Whoops, kind of glance, why is that going so fast? All right, so this is kind of an overview of treatment approaches, and what I'm gonna take you through now are really based on the guidelines, and I would encourage you to go to the guidelines. They're updated very frequently and present tables that I think lay it out pretty nicely in a, in a kind of a user-friendly format. I've just kind of tried to highlight some things. I mean, for your genotype one patients now, if you have a non-serotic patient, you're really gonna be treating them for 12 weeks with most of the regimens we have, with really all the regimens we have available. Um, we'll highlight the, the one issue about baseline resistance testing with Elbosphere grizoprevir. Um, now, as you get to cirrhotic patients, and, and I'll show you some of this, the, the regimens start to become a little more variable with a little more separation between them in terms of duration and use of ribavirin. Um, genotype 2, I, I would really say the de facto standard of care kind of has been soft alpatosphere for 12 weeks, while soft acladosphere probably looks uh, equivalent in terms of efficacy, it's just not as easy to access. And genotype 3, same thing, soft alpatosphere is really the go-to treatment here now. Um, and you can really expect cure rates over 95%, with maybe the exception of genotype 3 cirrhotics, but um, even that group is now right about 95%. So this is just meant to highlight the fact that co-infection really is not an issue in terms of efficacy of DAA regimens. These are studies with these various regimens done in co-infection uh, here and the SVR rates. Above in the box are, con are comparable SVR rates in the mono-infected trials. You can see really no significant difference. Um, I don't have eight weeks of soft lodiposphere up here. There still is no dedicated trial with eight weeks in co-infected patients. Um, there are 
dedicated eight-week studies for mono-infected patients, including accumulating real-world data to the point the guidelines now have also kind of come on to say eight weeks is acceptable in certain patients that meet the, the, the criteria for considering eight weeks. Um, the, the guidelines go on to kind of take uh, African-American or black patients out of that group um, because of a tendency for them to do slightly worse, potentially with truncated therapy. Quick here. Um, so I'm, I've got these for all the different treatment scenarios. I'm not going to run through these in the interest of time. You'll have them as to look back later. I'll just point out again, when you're talking about a treatment-naive population, not a lot of differentiation in non-serotics between the different regimens. The exception, and I'll show you the data for this, is the resistance testing with elbosphere grosoprevir in genotype 1A patients. Again, as you can see, as you get to serotics, more of the regimens become considered alternative because of extended duration and or the use of ribavirin. Um, and then I'll just point out soft velpatosphere really is 12 weeks for all these populations with really no consideration for doing baseline resistance testing and, and really no population on this uh, group with genotype 1 that you would add ribavirin. And the 1B is even easier. I mean, it's really 12 weeks no matter what you pick um, without the use of ribavirin. So uh, 1B is pretty straightforward. This is some of the data that I think was um, the underpinnings for the recommendation by FDA to do baseline resistance testing with elbosphere grosoprevir. Um, you can see here the difference in SVR rates. These are genotype 1 patients um, who were treatment naive that were treated with 12 weeks of elbosphere grosoprevir. You can see 98% without baseline resistance and 58% in those who had baseline resistance at a population level, so roughly about 20% of the viral quasi-species, and had specific elbosphere-specific resistance mutations. You can see up here it was only 5% of the overall population, but a pretty dramatic impact on their SVR if it was present. So you're testing to find that 5 to 10% um, to decide what to do. This is data and treatment experienced, even smaller numbers, um, but again, a, a very dramatic, maybe larger uh, delta in a treatment experienced population as you might expect. Um, they also went on and did a multivariate analysis, um, and the only thing that came out in multivariate analysis in terms of determining outcomes in a treatment-naive population with elbosphere grosoprevir was presence of baseline resistance and baseline viral load. Um, same thing in a treatment-experienced population, um, what came out was baseline resistance uh, mutations, 1B, because uh, compared to 1A, uh, was a higher chance of attaining an SVR. So, Two integrated analyses, meta-analyses, uh, uh, multivariate analyses suggested that baseline resistance was really the key determinant in terms of response to this regimen and, again, I think underlies the recommendation to do uh, baseline resistance testing. So now treatment experienced recommendations, again, won't run through this. You do start to see ribavirin pop into a couple places, although for non-serotics, um, still not much. Um, I'll point out with soft lodiposphere, either add ribavirin or extend to 24 weeks based on the serious study in your genotype 1A treatment experience serotic patients. And again, for 1Bs, um, particularly if they're non-serotic, even if they're treatment experience, it's really 12 weeks across the board. And again, 12 weeks across the board with soft belpatosphere and GT1. The only caveat would be uh, decompensated patients, which I actually don't have a table for here, but if you did have decompensated patients, it is recommended to add ribavirin even with soft belpatosphere for patients with um, prior hepatic decompensation. So genotypes 2 and 3, again, you can see the really soft velpatosphere 12 weeks across the board. Um, the guidelines do depart a little bit, and also I'll just point that out from the label, where guidelines recommend in um, treatment-naive serotics with soft velpatosphere to consider doing baseline resistance testing to look for NS5A resistance, particularly the Y93H, and if you have it, to consider adding ribavirin. Um, so that is one departure from the label with soft velpatosphere in genotype 3. 
Um, so this is just kind of an overview of Sawfield Patasphere, the Astro-1 study that looked at various genotypes. Um, I'll show you the genotype three later, data later, but you can see extremely high SVR rates across genotypes one, four, five, and six in the Astro-1 study. Um, really two virologic failures, one, one A and one B, no virologic failures in the four, fives, and sixes. Um, and I should have had genotype two on there as well. Genotype two was in this study and was 100% SVR as well. So now treatment experience genotype three, this one's a little interesting, uh, I think, um, because there's one other option that appears, Elbosphere, Grisopovir, plus Cefospovir. Um, so that was added in the more recent iteration of the guidelines and is probably, um, you know, going to be the toughest to access. I'll show you the data it's based on. It's based on the Sea Isle study um, that was presented at ASLD last year, the, the liver meeting, showing very high response rates. Otherwise, um, we'll look at Softville Patosphere. You can see here again, in treatment experience patients, for genotype 3 patients, again, this is where the guidelines do depart a bit from the label. They recommend adding ribavirin up front in a treatment experience cirrhotic genotype 3 patient. Um, the SVR rates in the Astral 3 study were 89% in the trial for treatment experienced and cirrhotic patients with softfield patosphere. While there's no direct data to suggest, no robust data to suggest adding ribavirin um, necessarily with softfield patosphere increases that, it was really based on experience in prior settings where ribavirin addition does tend to bring your SVR rates up a little bit, including in genotype 3 with soft cladosphere. And then you can see soft experienced patients, so any patients you had that had soft ribavirin before genotype 2 and 3, again, um, recommending adding ribavirin up front if they've been soft ribavirin experienced in 2 or 3s with softfield patosphere, and including this, again, option of using elbosphere, grisopovir, plus cefospovir. So here's the Sea Isle study. It was a study dedicated only in cirrhotic, so it was a cirrhotic-only study that evaluated um, in treatment-naive cirrhotics, eight or 12 weeks of this triple combination regimen. The eight-week regimen had ribavirin in it. And then treatment-experienced cirrhotics, looking at 12 weeks versus 16 weeks uh, with or without ribavirin. You can see very high rates in all the groups that got 12 weeks or more, so there was no clear signal that ribavirin had an impact. No clear signal that extending to 16 weeks had an impact, but relatively small numbers in these um, groups. Um, the hatch portions are patients that were, so this is a, you know, a modified intention to treat or only a completer analysis um, uh, patients looking at only virologic failures, not patients that dropped out for other reasons, was 100% for all those arms that were longer than eight weeks. Here's the Astral 3 study, so softfield patosphere and genotype 3. Again, this decrement that I talked to you already about, treatment experience cirrhotics down to 89% with 12 weeks of softfield patosphere. It was, uh, as would be no surprise, superior to soft ribavirin for 24 weeks. Um, in terms of the impact of resistance, so this was, you know, in patients that did have the Y93H, which does cause a significant fold change in um, velpatosphere activity in vitro and genotype 3, you can see the overall SVR rate was 84%, 21 out of 25. So a suggestion that baseline resistance had an impact, and that's how it kind of made it into the guidelines, recommending checking baseline resistance in those higher risk populations with genotype 3. So fours, fives, and sixes, I'm not going to talk over these tables. They're here, but just su suffice it to say, a lot of these regimens, and they're almost all 12 weeks. With the, the prod regimen, you do omit the desabovir, but you should add ribavirin at least to optimize responses. Um, that brought it up to essentially, you know, 99% in those studies. And here are treatment experience fours through sixes. Um, so just to briefly talk about drug interactions, I think the first thing is you don't need to remember all the drug interactions. Remember that you need to look them up is what I try to do. And so 
Um, these are some of the classes that I think if you see it on a patient's medication list, hopefully that'll kind of set something off in your brain, oh, I should check the drug interactions before proceeding with hep C therapy. So acid-reducing agents, cardiovascular drugs, particularly amiodarone. If you do remember one, remember amiodarone is the no-no with sofosbuvir, okay? Um, calcium channel blockers are the other ones you can see interactions. Antiepileptics or mood stabilizers, statins, and antiretrovirals then. And you guys are all very adept at looking at the... Really, I, I think HIV providers are adept at looking at drug interactions in general. You're used to doing it, and so keep doing it with the hep C meds. Um, and then I don't think you need to remember the interactions, but remember you need to look them up, and these are two good options to do that. Just talk about the acid-reducing agents with lodiposphere and velpatosphere. Um, PPIs decrease. Um, you need acid in your stomach to absorb lodiposphere and velpatosphere. Um, while the effect looks very similar, um, the recommendations on how to handle it are different. Um, the recommendation is really not to use a PPI with velpatosphere unless you kind of have to. Um, and then you dose the HCV medicines four hours before with food, and then you dose the PPI, which should be, again, no more than 20 milligrams or equivalent of omeprazole. Contrast that with soft lodiposphere, where you take them simultaneously. Um, that was based on some, not some studies here, but some studies with velpatosphere that suggested even with concurrent dosing, you saw a significant decrease in velpatosphere exposure. And then also remember H2 blockers and antacids like Tums, things like that. Um, you want to separate with H2 blockers 12 hours, 4 hours separate your antacids. Here's the drug interaction chart with HIV medicines. I'm not going to go through it. A couple things. Sofosbuvir is pretty much all green except for tipranavir, which I don't even think I pulled over. So SOF is generally going to be okay with almost any ART regimen you have. It's going to be NS5A inhibitors and PIs that you need to watch out for. And then going this way, as you might expect, integrase inhibitors are going to be your most friendly. And TAF also probably improves this because the systemic tenofovir exposure is lower with TAF, and that's where you reach, run into some potential problems. Okay, another question. Based on recent data, what is the rate of clinical HBB reactivation DNA and ALT in isolated core positive patients treated for HCV? Okay. Well, you all pretty much are on the low end, which is good. We've got less than 1%, about a third, and half of you thinking 5%. We just quickly, we're kind of out of time, so I'll just show you in the last couple slides. Um, so there were a couple case reports of HBV reactivation, including an editorial that I thought was interesting to read about why this might be. Um, the first couple cases were relatively severe reported out of Emory, um, but Ashwin and, and Chloe talked about several potential mechanisms, whether it's direct viral competition, viral inhibition, one virus the other, competition for replication space, the hepatocytes, or is there some immune interaction? And since Jen is in the audience, I'm going to show some of the data that Jen did when she was at UCSD with Chip and I. Um, looking at, this is um, both viral load decrease and IP10 decrease, or interferon gamma-inducible protein 10 and interferon-stimulated gene. And what HCV seems to be very adept at doing, it does stimulate interferon responses in the liver. Whereas if you look at somebody with chronic HBV alone, you don't see a lot of these interferon-stimulated genes upregulated. So one of the thoughts is, while you have chronic HCV, it's stimulating these interferon-sensitive genes or interferon gene products that inhibit replication of hepatitis B, even though they don't control C. And then you remove the C, and all of a sudden these interferon-stimulated gene genes come down, and now HBV can replicate. That's really all theory. 
and conjecture right now, but it, it, I like that explanation the best myself. Um, so this was the FDA warning, which has recently been updated. They reported in Annals of Internal Medicine actually 29 cases. Um, there were two deaths and one liver transplant. I think the big caveat here is most of these patients were from Japan. They were being treated with osinopavir to cladosphere. And a lot of these were investigated very late because there was also a known potential for some hepatotoxicity with osinopavir. So LFTs would go up and they kind of ignored them thinking, oh, it's the hep C therapy and didn't do a lot of investigation for hepatitis B until a lot of these patients were presenting with now really signs of advanced uh, liver failure. Um, what's come out now, though, after this FDA warning kind of got on everybody's radar, I think, has been a number of studies that have suggested the risk is probably very low. Um, so there, um, Mark Slukowski looked back retrospectively at some industry studies that looked at this, including in Taiwan, where they had a large portion, over 100 patients who were core antibody positive, isolated cores, and they saw no reactivations um, in this population. Um, only a couple even reactivated any HBV DNA. A large VA database suggesting a very similar thing with none of the isolated core patients having any evidence of hepatitis B clinical reactivation or flare. And then finally at Easel, they went a step further, treating surface antigen positive patients, a number of whom even had cirrhosis who were not on any suppressive HBV therapy. And they saw a pretty low rate of HBV reactivation, uh, about 4% overall. Um, extrahepatic manifestations, I'll skip over just to say treating hepatitis C is beneficial for the extrahepatic manifestations as well as the liver manifestations. Um, you had that in, in there, including coronary outcomes and glucose control improves significantly. So that is one warning. If you have patients, your diabetic patients on insulin or particularly sulfonylureas where they can become hypoglycemic, it probably is worthwhile to monitor them maybe a little bit more closely when they're taking their DAAs. Some of them you will see a significant decrease in the amount of insulin or, or hypoglycemics they need. I'm going to skip over end-stage renal disease and monitoring. I want to talk about one last thing, which is hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, so there were a couple reports out of Spain and Italy um, a year and a half, two years ago, that suggested or raised alarm bells saying, oh, my gosh, you treat your patients with DAAs, all of a sudden they're going to get aggressive hepatocellular carcinoma that comes on very quickly after they're cured. Um, and what we saw at the easel meeting, the theme was clearly last year, this past easel meeting, that um, that's probably not the case. I think I was pretty well convinced that it is not the case. Um, what, you what are the keys to control for are the age of the patients you're looking at and their stage of liver disease. Not just are they cirrhotic, but are they child's pubes B's, or C's. If you control for patient age and their stage of cirrhosis or their level of cirrhosis, you see no effect of hepatitis C DAAs. And in fact, what you see is what has always kind of been realized. Treating their hepatitis C dramatically reduces the risk of developing hepatocellular carcinoma, even in cirrhotics, compared to untreated patients who are matched by age and stage of liver disease. Um, same thing goes with recurrent hep C. So somebody who has a treated hep C lesion, again, more what I think are robust data are really indicating that this is not uh, an effect. That said, don't forget to screen your patients who are cirrhotic. They should be getting ultrasounds every six months after they're cured, and that really is indefinitely right now. Um, so don't forget that. That's one thing that keeps me up sometimes still is, is making sure we don't forget. And with that, um, that's it, and then we can take some questions. Thanks very much, David. Um, some guidance, please. Easiest HIV combos to work, uh, no boosted PIs. Uh, any other easy ideas? <laughs> um, I think it's kind of I point out, I mean, integrase inhibitor-based regimens, particularly on boosted ones, are going to be probably the simplest and most straightforward. Um, there's, you know, this little bit of concern with maybe TDF-based formulations of tenofovir because you have 
higher tenophere plasma exposures. And when you give soft lodiposphere or soft opatosphere, they raise tenophere exposure by about another 30 to 40 percent. Um, so there is some potential there. So again, going to a TAF-based regimen probably does make that a little easier as well, doing that interaction. Um, have you had any experience in seeing patients who have both genotype 1A and B? Could that be an acute infection, or is that a uh, laboratory um, right. misinterpretation? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will say most of the 1A slash 1Bs we saw were when they were genotyped a long time ago. I think the more recent genotyping assays are much better at discriminating 1A versus 1B. So I think most of the time you see a 1A slash 1B, it's a limitation of the test, not a true reflection that the patient actually has 1A and 1B in the same patient. You know, we do know that dual infection can occur. Um, the literature kind of varies a lot. If you're talking about an injection drug-using population, again, it's kind of been all over the place, some suggesting it's very rare, less than a couple percent. A few analyses from Australia have shown maybe it's 15 to 20 percent, but I think that's high. You really need to do deep sequencing to be able to figure that out, though. So here's a very sophisticated question about patients with advanced liver disease and trying to decide about decompensated cirrhotics when they need to be on the transplant list before you treat them in the sequence of treating. Yeah. Um, if a patient is uh, Charles Q greater than, equal or greater than 7, using a um, um, protease inhibitor is contraindicated, but mm -hmm. um, if the patient doesn't have ascites or encephalopathy, just decreased synthetic function, yeah. uh, do they still need to be on the transplant list before you treat them? That is a great question, and it is complex. Um, a lot of it is, uh, as the answer to many things are, it depends. Um, there's been, you know, Nora Tarot here at UCSF obviously has done a lot of work on this and thinking about this. So one of the things you have to ask yourself is the patient otherwise a transplant candidate. Um, you know, a lot of the patients that we see that still have, don't have social support, psychiatric disease, continued drug use, we're very, still very aggressive about treating their hep C, but they're not going to be transplant candidates. Um, and if they've been evaluated and they're not a transplant candidate, that makes your calculus quite a bit easier. You should treat them, I think, um, unless they're really moribund. Um, in terms of other, you know, there was a modeling study done out of Harvard that tried to look at this. And at least when they modeled the United States based on progression models, it really depended on where you were. The threshold, though, generally was still around a meld of 23 to 26. Um, anybody below that, which is pretty advanced liver disease, in their models anyway, they felt treating their hep C first was the way to go. Um, and if you're at the very high end, you know, melds of 30, where they're very sick, then you probably are better off if they have access to an organ going to treat their, uh, get the transplant first. Twos and three, genotype twos and threes are probably the toughest because of the, uh, sorry, um, the patients who um, have to, can't you have end-stage renal disease and advanced liver disease who can't maybe use a cephalosphere-based regimen and you want to use a protease inhibitor regimen otherwise. Um, although, I'd say we're becoming more and more comfortable with using cefospivir in patients with advanced renal disease. So, so while you're on the transplant yeah. uh, scenario, one of the other issues that's come up is uh, these drugs work pretty well now. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, hepatitis C infected organs that have been being tossed. Yep. Uh, what, yep. What's your thought about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, it's becoming a little more prevalent in using hep C positive organs. Um, Kidneys is pretty widely used. So if you have a hepatitis C positive patient that has end-stage renal disease and is um, on the list to get a kidney transplant, make sure you talk to your transplant nephrologist before you transplant them because, one, they, if they take an HCV positive organ, they're going to have a much shorter wait list on the renal transplant list. Um, there are studies looking at this, though. Pittsburgh, I think, is doing one. Um, they're doing one um, at Brigham and Women's, I think, looking at taking 
HCV positive organs, um, Brigham, they're interested in looking at lungs and hearts and putting them into HCV negative patients even um, and treating them with truncated therapy. Now that's still research, but uh, Mike Charlton as well has espoused that and they've done it in several patients, um, kind of getting institutional approval first, but not in the course of a study and accepting HCV positive organs for negative patients. Yes. Yeah. I mean, one part of your question is, you know, how adherent do you need to be? It's, I think we, we certainly all have our patients that make you think you don't need to be too adherent, actually, in a lot of scenarios to, to be cured for hep C. And talking to other people, I know we all, again, other people in other places have patients. Um, Mark Solkowski presented some data from, they just did an intensive study, an R01-funded study, to treat the ones they had left in their HIV clinic. And he was really impressed with what he perceived as the lack of adherence you could have and still be cured. Um, so I think that's one thing, you know, would, if you have a patient you think is going to be non-adherent, would you pick a different regimen? You know, should you pick a soft-based regimen because it has such a high barrier to resistance and you don't tend to fail with drug resistance, at least just the fosbuvir? I don't know if that would necessarily be better than, say, elbasirgrizoprovir. Adding ribavirin, I think, is tough if you already have a population you think is going to be non-adherent. Um, I just, I don't know how much they're going to take the ribavirin. Um, just to add it just for that indication I, is not something I've done anyway. How about the new PR? Uh, yeah, so glucaprovir, well, there's, there's, there's two, glucaprovir and then voxelaprovir. Um, glucaprovir is very potent in that, that combination of GP. One thing I didn't mention, but that's probably going to be the first regimen that has a very broad indication for eight weeks. Um, in most non-serotic genotypes, maybe genotype three, there's a little hesitation there maybe, but all the rest is probably going to be eight weeks for a non-serotic population. Um, in terms of resistance when they fail, um, they do tend to have resistance. Uh, they have some resistance when they fail still, and it is dual class. Now, the, the protease inhibitor resistance is probably going to go away relatively quickly, at least by detection methods. Yeah. Okay. Uh, two questions really about the same thing, and that is uh, the um, genotype 3 patients with cirrhosis and the uh, Y93H mm -hmm. mutation. Mm -hmm. um, what's your um, best regimen for that? What and how long? <laughs> yeah, I think um, right now, GT3 patients, if they have Y93H, they're cirrhotic. I would say sofilpatasur plus ribavirin for 12 weeks. There's just not a lot of data on extending that further. Um, I think the guidelines do give you an option to go to 24 weeks if you have somebody that absolutely can't take ribavirin. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a battle to get it approved, probably. Um, you know, I think we're, so the, the triple soft Velvox, there is certainly data in genotype 3, a dedicated genotype 3 serotic study um, that looked at uh, 12 weeks of that regimen, and it looks good, but it's in the same ballpark, you know, 97% or so, and there is a little drop-off in, in, in some of the serotic patients um, with that regimen with shorter durations, like eight weeks, clearly it drops off, so it's not going to be a panacea there. And then GP as well is, is, looks good for eight weeks, but there are, uh, sorry, with 12 weeks. Genotype 3 serotic, so they, they looked at extending that, going 12 or even to 16 um, in a small number of patients. So 
Um, I mean, I think Softbell plus ribavirin for 12 weeks is, is pretty good. And in a genotype 3 cirrhotic patient, I wouldn't wait for these new ones because it's not clear to me that there's going to be substantially better for those genotype 3 cirrhotics. You might not need to use ribavirin, but that would be about it. You answered the last question, which was anything coming along new for the decompensated cirrhotics. Well, the decompensateds are problematic because of, so really no for decompensateds because the, the coming regimens are all going to have a PI component, and um, that's really kind of a no-no in, uh, in the decompensated cirrhotics. Um, yeah. All right. Thanks very much, David. Yep. All right, so we've come to the end of a, of a long day, and I think a great day from our perspective. We really appreciate your uh, attendance, your participation even more so, and uh, hope that you'll be here for the 26th uh, year. Uh, I have a few um, uh, key points from each presentation that I'm going to um, uh, tell you the answer is all of the above for each of them. Um, no, I think the last three uh, presentations were very straightforward and um, Key points really from Dr. Vinson's uh, um, talk are that obviously new agents are coming along. We need them. We've, several years ago, people just said we've got um, uh, tenofovir, FTC, and uh, Favarin's. Why would anything else? And it's very clear that uh, we've uh, seen some improvements, and longer-acting agents are going to play a role as well. Uh, there's nothing to say about global warming except that um, I hope that uh, we don't have to talk about it in the future, but I'm afraid we will. Then finally, hepatitis C is really uh, a gratifying field. What we can do with this disease now compared to five, eight years ago is phenomenal. It still is more complicated than I think people who don't pay attention to it realize it is. I think people now, it's one pill once a day, 12 weeks, you're done with it. There's a lot of nuance both to the practical uh, aspects of treating these patients that David, I think, very nicely laid out. And one thing we didn't talk about today, but we have talked about before, is the role of the pharmacist and others uh, in uh, wrangling with the uh, third-party payers uh, in terms of getting access to the drugs and uh, getting patients treated. And I don't think we can um, minimize, uh, we shouldn't uh, minimize at all the role they play. I think that is one of the major reasons why, even though you say the treatment itself is relatively straightforward, the energy hump to figure all that out is relatively high still. And I don't think you're going to have a lot of people who have a general medicine practice, may have three or four people in the practice need to be treated, are going to want to spend the time figuring all that out to treat three or four patients, and they're going to still be referring them to you. Uh, and I think that should be encouraged because uh, there's no point in uh, wasting so much uh, cortex on stuff that you don't need to use but once or twice a year when there are people uh, like the ones in this room who already know how to do that. So um, let us stop right now. We uh, want you to recycle your lanyards and your name badges. That's our optimism about needing them for next year. Uh, we have an electronic evaluation that we want you to complete to get your CME credits. The cases are going to be available on the website that Mike uh, went over with you earlier. Uh, and I want to thank all of you for coming, all of you for your participation, the faculty for their talks and their presentations, uh, IESUSA for sponsoring it, the IESUSA staff for making this go so uh, smoothly, uh, and um, the um, Oakland Airport for making it possible for those of us who need to get home uh, to get home tonight. So thanks again for everybody. We look forward to seeing you next year, and uh, thanks a lot.